the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 15 minutes could save you. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Dark forces came behind To the left and right The desert brought panic to their minds The evil of that hour Was stronger than the sun That beat on them With nowhere left to run The chariots of Egypt Drew nearer as they cried Yet Moses stood there calmly with a fearless faith inside He said there is a power Far greater than the sword Stand still and you will witness A mighty salvation from our Joy. 
progress. We were at a Red Sea yesterday. We did an offertory. The goal was $1,400. And by the end of the day, there was just a small amount left. And then several people stepped forward and covered it all. Thank you. Thank you. So we are covered. This month's radio bill I can send the check as soon as those pledges arrive. What an awesome gift that was to our hearts and how we praised Jesus and how we worshipped him, how we claimed in him the wonderful victory. Thank you. Thank you. We've been sharing with you the stories of revival. We began with the story of the revival in Argentina, 1938? No, 1960s. 1960s, that's correct. And God moved powerfully in Argentina. He totally transformed a nation. And then we shared with you the Kentucky revival, the Cane Ridge revival as it's referred to in history. Again, 1801, God moved powerfully in this revival. But now it's been about a hundred years since we've seen any real national revival in America. Someone said to me, what about the Jesus movement? Yes, it was a movement, but it was by and large rejected by the churches They didn't want stinky hippies coming into their church. And it quickly faded away, even though it was powerful in its influence on many ungodly pagan people. Again, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that does this wonderful work of redemption. And Alexandra and I have come to a place where we recognize very clearly the need for the powerful anointing of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. And we will not, we will not shut up. We will not back away. 
we are committed to revival for America. And that's going to require a great anointing of the Holy Spirit, a Pentecost anointing, a, a Cornelius anointing for healing, for salvation, for conviction in the hearts of sinners. So we'd like to share today a part of the story of, of how you can receive this anointing of the Holy Spirit. And it's the path down which both of us have been walking and are currently walking. And we are waiting with great expectation for this wonderful anointing for power and ministry in the Holy Spirit, a purifying of heart and equipping. We know that revival will not come until there's a change. We know that change has to come about by the power of the blood of Jesus. So if you're interested in receiving the anointing power of God, Listen carefully as we share together today. Do you have the title of the book that we're reading from? I don't. All right. We're re Do you remember the author? I don't. All I know is that his first name is Beverly. We're reading from The Sanctified Life. Is it Beverly Clarendon? Yes. Wonderful. So we'll begin reading at chapter 3, which is called, The Blessing is Obtainable Now. If God can purify the heart and will not, he would be a strange God. There would be room here for the charge of divine indifference and even cruelty, if this were so. If the divine being would purify the soul and cannot, then we have a weak and helpless Lord to worship. But who will say for a moment that God cannot? And who would believe that he will not? The fact is that God is able and willing to sanctify the soul. If able and willing to do it, there certainly is no need of postponing the work to the hour of death. So what he's speaking of here, and this is very common today, are people who say you have to keep struggling to be holy and you're never going to get the victory over sin until you die. You can never be sanctified until you die. Well, he's saying that if we believe that, then we're either saying that God cannot or will not do it now. He says to thus remand our expectation to the very brink of the grave is to reflect on the goodness as well as holiness of the Almighty. We cannot afford to do this. Certainly, if God is willing to do the work, and he alone can do it, why should we not seek it now, and expect and receive it now? The blessing of sanctification is taught in one place as a purifying of the heart and an empowering for service. In another place, it is described as the entrance of Christ into the soul as an indweller. The same truth is taught under this change of terms, for the Lord will not abide unbrokenly in the heart until inbred sin is cleansed away by the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire, and the result of that constant indwelling is bound to be power. So purifying and empowering 
is the same thing as Christ's entrance into the soul to abide permanently. It was this he referred to in the 14th chapter of John, when he said, We will come unto him and make our abode with him. And I just wanted to turn to that 14th chapter of John, because I think it'll make a little bit more sense if we look at it. So this is John 14, beginning in verse 21. Jesus says to his disciples, Anybody who receives my commandments and keeps them will be one who loves me. And anybody who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I shall love him and show myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we shall come to him and make our home with him. So you can see in this passage that Jesus is talking about someone who is already keeping the commandments of God. In other words, someone who has already been regenerated. They have stopped sinning. They are walking in obedience to God. But he's saying, Anybody who loves me and keeps my word, my Father will love him and we shall come to him and make our home with him. So this is subsequent to conversion. Yes, that's what uh, this author is saying, is that this is a second work that happens after conversion. So he goes on, When this takes place, the man will find that he has purity and power, in a word, sanctification. How may such a wonderful blessing be obtained? Let us see if we cannot present the matter in such a way that the hungry, watchful soul can go right into this beautiful grace of God. One of the most frequent descriptions given of man in the Bible is that of a house, building, or temple. For example, ye are God's building, says the apostle, and again, know ye not that ye are the temple of God. We were originally made or built for God to dwell in. Satan marred the plan of heaven by taking possession of us. For example, some of you have seen a beautiful dwelling pass out of the hands of the first owners and become the abode of poverty and degradation. The writer of this book once looked at a famous hotel that in its palmy days had seen in its spacious rooms and halls the beauty, chivalry, and statesmanship of a large southern state. But at the time he viewed it, about the only thing left of the magnificence was its colossal size. It had become a tenement for the vilest and most poverty-stricken classes in the city. The paint had faded from the wall, doors were gone or hanging on a single hinge, and window panes were broken and stuffed with rags. Dark-looking, dissipated, and ragged figures lounged about the doors or hung out of the windows. (coughs) Dogs and pigs roamed unchecked through the lower halls and galleries, and one could scarcely realize that this place had once been as attractive as it was now revolting. Likewise, Satan took God's building and rubbed off the colors of grace and innocence, planted decay and moral ugliness where he could, filled the door of the mouth with all kinds of uncleanness, hung forbidding looks out of the windows of the eyes, and shocked the beholder in every way. But through grace this house is redeemed from the devil. It becomes the Lord's house again. It is washed, cleansed, and warmed, and recognized as God's property. Everybody marks the delightful change. There is one thing, however, 
that constitutes a painful experience to the redeemed man himself, and which is evident as a fact to the observer, and that is the Savior is not an abider in this house which belongs to him. He is a visitor coming and going, but not a steady, constant indweller. This visiting Christ, now consciously in the soul, and now as consciously absent, will upon compliance with conditions on our part come into us and take up his fixed and unchanging abode. When this happens, sanctification happens. The purifying spirit goes through the soul, and Christ enters to leave no more, if we will have it so. How is this entering in and blessed possession of us to take place? The whole matter is made clear by following out a line of thought suggested by the image or figure of the building. Remember that the Savior's word is that if we will do certain things, in other words, if we will keep his word because we love him, then he and the Father will come unto him and make our abode with him. And remember that visiting is one thing and abiding is another. Some of you will recall the first time you ever saw your wife. She was paying a visit at your father's home. It was a brief call, but it affected you forever and changed the house itself. The room she stood in looked different. The furniture assumed a new and peculiar luster. The cup out of which she drank water you quietly set aside as your own, determining that no other lips should desecrate it. The old brick walk down which she went and the gate with its overarching trees through which she passed took upon themselves a subtle charm and glory. This was only a visit, but a year from that time she came again and this time to stay. She came with trunks and baggage and took up her abode. She was now your wife. The blessing we're speaking of changes Christ from a visitor to an abider in the heart. His visits were beautiful and blessed. But alas for the absences, how we used to sing, Return, O holy dove, return, and how tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. The indwelling is what we want, Christ to move in, take possession, and never leave us any more. This is brought about by a method analogous to what we see when a person moves into an earthly home. First, the house is to be emptied. If a man purchases a building from you, there is one thing he expects, and that you do. You empty it for him. He does not want your old goods. He has furniture of his own, and doubtless much better than the kind you possess. So in offering yourself as the Lord's dwelling place, he demands that you let everything go. Keep nothing back and in a word, empty yourself. This is only another way of describing consecration. A man who is laying everything on the altar is simply emptying himself. As the consecration proceeds, the person is conscious of an increasing emptiness, and just before the blessing comes, in describing his experience, he would say, I have given up everything, am all emptied, and have nothing as yet in return except the conviction that I have done right. Let's talk about that a minute. I have walked and am walking that where everything is put into the hands of Jesus, where there is no hope in my heart, 
for anything of human enterprise where there is no hope of some strategy or some proposed success. It is all in the hands of Jesus. And what we saw yesterday on this broadcast financially is an example of this where Alexandra and I had no ability to produce the $1,400 to pay for the radio for this month. And we on the air, but much privately and off air, put it all in the hands of Jesus and said, Jesus, we're trusting you to move outside of us in the hearts and lives of people, that they would respond and that this $1,400 would be covered. We have no way to provide for it. So our eyes are upon you, Jesus. We know you called us here. We know you instructed us to do this broadcast. We know you're telling us to speak about revival. We know that we're to promote revival as the Holy Spirit directs us but we have no power to bring about revival. Often we have spoken together and prayed together about you who listen, for it is not in our power to cause you to stop sinning. It is not in our power to convince you that you must receive Christ in a new way and you must open your heart to the fire of the Holy Spirit to come and burn in you. These things we cannot make happen. So we've been asking, even as we ask Jesus to step in and move outside of our power in the area of money, we likewise are asking the Holy Spirit to come. We're asking Jesus to send outside of us outside of our words, a fire in your chest, a throbbing in your heart, that you must have more of Jesus, that you must experience something different that we can't make you experience, we can't give to you. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so the cry of our heart is for you, that the Red Sea would be parted that you would begin to sense and know the fullness of the Holy Spirit in a way you have never before experienced Him. See, the Holy Spirit is not interested in dancing and shouting and spitting. He comes quietly. He comes in to stay. And He grants the power to do the work of the gospel. Now, I've spent many years doing the work of the gospel, digging out one person at a time. And as I look at it all, yes, I know I obeyed the Holy Spirit. Yes, much good has been accomplished. Much good has been accomplished by this radio broadcast. But not nearly what he wants to accomplish. And we're just at a place of absolutely saying, Lord Jesus, we're waiting for this fire of God to come. 
we're waiting for you to come to this city of Washington and revive it once again and cause you who listen to turn from your sin, to repent, to be converted. There's no use talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit if you have not been converted. If you're still walking in known rebellion and sin against God, if your heart is is cold, there's not much use talking about the Holy Spirit coming in fire because he's not going to come and indwell that kind of heart. It's a call to repent, to be converted, to be changed, to become new. And then the Holy Spirit comes with fire as he did at Pentecost. That's the cry of our heart today. Yes, and so when Pastor Ray says that he is eager for you to have more of Jesus, he's speaking to those of you who have received Jesus in the way this author is describing as a visitor. So you have left your sin, you are keeping the commandments of God, but you now desire this more permanent abiding of Christ. So he will illustrate this. He says... The writer illustrated this emptying process in his church in St. Louis. In front of the pulpit stretched a large altar in the form of a semicircle. Its shape was made to stand for the heart. At the beginning of the illustration, there were a number of persons in the altar, as well as books, papers, overcoats, hats, and so forth. The preacher quietly put the individuals out and off the platform, saying that he would not let a single human being fill the place where Christ should reign. After this, he threw out the hats, overcoats, gloves, scarves, declaring that the dress questions should be settled in that manner. Then he removed the beautiful chairs from the stand, affirming that rich furniture should not be an idol with him. Then he picked up some books and papers and put them outside the altar with the remark that men's writings and opinions should not stand a moment before the known will and command of God. About this time, the altar looked exceedingly empty. But still, the illustrator was not satisfied. Going around, he found small things like bits of paper and thread on the floor, Stooping down, he carefully picked them up and cast them outside the altar rail, saying, Nothing, no matter how small, shall stay. At last, only he and the Bible were left inside the altar heart. Whereupon, after placing the holy book in the very center of the altar, he himself stepped out, declaring as he went that the word of God should alone rule and reign in that heart. A hundred or more people stood around, looking at this figurative sermon. There was not an individual who looked into the emptied, silent altar with the solitary Bible in the center of the platform, but felt solemn and grasped with a convicting clearness what emptying of the heart meant and must be in order that Christ might come. This is unquestionably the hard thing with many to do. Yet it must be done. 
It may take days, but there will be no divine incoming until there is the human emptying. How is it possible to fill us until we are first emptied? How could God truthfully say we had his fullness when something of self and the world was left? Emptied first, filled afterward, is the order. The disciples were ten days engaged in the human part of the work while they waited in the upper room until the day of Pentecost. We once thought that they were ten days getting filled with the Holy Ghost, but they were ten days getting emptied. It does not take God ten seconds to fill thoroughly and overflowingly the self-emptied man. God moves at once into the vacated dwelling. Second, the house must be cleaned. That individual would be lacking in self-respect who would turn an untidy and defiled building over to the man who had purchased it and desired to move in. So there is a cleansing of hands and hearts to obtain Jesus, the indwelling sanctifier in our souls. There was a cleansing and regeneration from all personal guilt and sin. Yet is there a deeper purifying for the man in whom the Son of God will abide forever. The disciples in the 16th chapter of John were called clean by Christ, but in the 17th chapter he prayed his Father to sanctify them, and sanctify means to make pure and holy. To obtain this profounder purification, which removes the principle itself of sin, we are called upon to cleanse ourselves first. This does not mean that the regenerated man is a sinner. What is meant will be taught him in that hour when he pants for Jesus to come into him. Sanctify yourselves, for the Lord your God will sanctify you. There is a double sanctification, a human and a divine. We sanctify, and then God sanctifies. We cleanse the life, and he cleanses the soul. We attend to the seen and he to the unseen. So to put it in more simple terms, what the writer is saying here is that it is, it is your responsibility to prepare yourself for Jesus to come. So it's not a passive approach, but it requires concrete actions on your part. Ray, could you talk about what this looked like for you? For me, it has looked like turning the television off. It has looked like actually taking it out, a large screen, new Sony television some 20 years ago, taking it out and putting it in the trash. Because I loved the football. I loved many things on the television. And the Lord said, it has to go if I'm to come in. And so the television went out. And as the television went out, I found more and more time and interest in just the reading of the scriptures and an infilling of the word of God in my life. It also meant I stopped watching the movies. It meant I cut those out. It meant I also stopped reading the science fiction novels that I loved. It also meant I stopped reading the historical fiction novels that I loved. 
It meant I no longer read anything that did not lead me to Jesus. Those things I've had to cut out of my life. And then there were other things that had to go. My ambition to be successful had to be laid on the altar. My desire to be financially successful had to be laid on the altar. I could not worship God and money. The Lord said to me, audibly, Will you receive from my hand only what I choose to give you? I quickly said yes. Had I understood the depth of what that would mean, I would have taken more time before answering him. Well, I'm glad that you didn't. Because literally, it meant, will you receive the wife I bring to you? Will you receive the friends I bring to you? Will you receive the money I bring to you? And wait for me to bring what I choose to you. And so my life has become narrowed down so that the world is no longer what I desire. There is nothing in the world that I hunger for any longer. My cry now is for Jesus to come in and abide forever. And so very practically, it meant I had to cut out of my life those things that the Holy Spirit put his finger on and said, this has to go. We spoke with a man recently about chewing tobacco. He doesn't understand that if he continues to chew tobacco, the Holy Spirit will not come and dwell in him. When he comes, he comes in to a clean house. And we have the responsibility of ending our sin. And we have the ability to end that sin because we've been granted the freedom in Christ to choose not to sin. Every man sins and is responsible for his sin before God and will face the judgment. When we give up our sin and we enter into Jesus Christ, we are truly free. So what would have happened if you had really started praying for the power of the Holy Spirit, but you had still been watching the television or you'd been unwilling to give up your ambition? I actually did that. And for a number of years, and in the church I was pastoring at the time, a very large church, we held 40 days of fasting and prayer where we prayed for the revival and we prayed for the coming of the Holy Spirit. We spent all night prayer sessions. We spent every Tuesday night in prayer. We sought after the Lord with all of our hearts, but we were not all of our hearts. We still loved the things of darkness and the Holy Spirit did not come. He didn't even quicken us. It was all flesh. It was willpower. And I've met many men like this who 
say, I want the Holy Spirit and I want revival. But what they're really saying is, I want to use the Holy Spirit to make me successful. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Spirit will not come and be used by any man or any woman. No, we have to have a motive where we aren't doing it because we have a selfish reason. We don't want to be happy. We don't want to be someone important. No, it's mm-hmm. it has to be the cry of our heart for the lost, for the dying, for the sick. And that comes from the heart of Jesus as sin is cut out of our lives. So that's the call. So the writer of the book illustrates illustrates this again with a house image. He says, A woman will wash the windows and floors of the house for the new owner, but we never yet knew the incoming woman satisfied with the washing or cleansing of the outgoing woman. She at once travels over the track of her scouring predecessor with soap, brush, and broom, giving what she calls a better cleaning. So in like manner, deep as may be a purifying, God purifies still deeper. We may brush down the spider webs, but it takes the Lord to kill the spider. Third, you must stand at the door of an emptied and cleansed house and watch and wait for the coming of the owner. This is what we have seen people do. The house had been prepared, and the former possessor stood with the keys in hand, awaiting the arrival of the new purchaser. So should the seeker of sanctification stand at the door of his own emptied heart and look up for his descending Lord. We never knew of Christ coming with this blessing to any other than to such an upward looker and expector. As the writer recalls certain ones he has seen sanctified, his heart melts and eyes fill from the bare memory as he sees them again with that indescribably pathetic gaze, the soul in the eyes, looking and longing for Jesus to descend and fill his blood-bought home. Of course, we do not mean that the physical glance is always upward. Sometimes it is not, and the head is bowed, but the soul gaze is always heavenward, no matter where the bodily eyes may be resting. Moreover, we can recognize the fact of the spiritual uplook and feel at the same time that something will soon happen happen to the wistful gazer, and it does. Happy the man who will not allow himself to be diverted and distracted, but having emptied and cleansed his heart, will stand waiting with ardent prayer and expectation for Christ to descend, fill, and ever after remain as the glorious indweller of his soul. It is the attitude of surrender and devotion the spirit of faith and the grace of supplication, all united in one person. Such a person will not be disappointed. Christ is certain to come. He cannot stay away. At this juncture comes the filling, or taking possession. Just as an earthly owner sweeping up with carriages and vans moves into his new home, So Jesus descends in chariots of fire with the furniture of heaven to fill and take possession of the perfectly consecrated and waiting soul. What an epic and what an experience. Who can forget it? The very memory arising in after years fills the eyes and sets the soul on fire anew. Jesus comes, he fills my soul, perfected in love I am. I am every whit made whole, glory, glory to the Lamb. 
or as sung by Charles Wesley over 100 years ago. He visits now the house of clay, he shakes his future home. O wouldst thou, Lord, in this glad day into thy temple come? Come, O my God, thyself reveal, fill all this mighty void. Thou only canst my spirit fill. Come, O my God, my God. We recall a lady who the morning she received this blessing was leaning against a great pillar in the center of the church. What a hungry, wistful look she had. Her hands were folded and eyes looking upward when suddenly the glorious blessing came in the entrance of the blesser. With a great rapturous cry that went through every heart, she fell forward as if shot through the heart with a musket ball. Another lady we remember who had consecrated, believed, prayed, waited, looked and received Jesus into her soul in the sweetest, gentlest way. We saw her afterwards at the altar with an uplifted look and perfectly abstracted from her surroundings. With a strange, sweet smile on her face, her eyes seemed fixed on worlds out of sight. For an hour, she never moved a muscle or closed an eyelid. People passed before her, but she seemed to look through them. It was like one hanging out of a window of time, gazing into eternity. She seemed to be looking at Christ and into heaven, while the soul's voiceless content and immeasurable calm was written in every line of the rapt countenance. No one was able to behold her without tears gushing. All felt that Christ had come to his home and was abiding therein. A soul was hushed into perfect rest in the midst of a stormy world. The redeemed, encircled in the divine arms and pillowed on the divine breast, was looking into the face of the Redeemer. Blessed quietness, holy quietness, what assurance fills my soul. On the stormy sea, Jesus speaks to me, and the billows cease to roll. I hope as you have listened to this reading that your heart has been quickened, that you desire this infilling of the Holy Spirit, that you will pray with us and search with us that everything should be in order in your life, that everything should be available to Jesus. For some of you, it will mean laying aside your busyness and all of your attempts to be successful, to be recognized, to be somebody. For some of you, it's going to mean you need to move the television out of your house you need to turn aside from the modern culture of entertainment, including movies, video games, professional sports, whatever it is that captivates your time and your interest other than Jesus needs to be moved out of your heart. And it requires a systematic deciding to empty ourselves in preparation for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to clarify, we're not talking about emptying yourself of sin, because the sin should already be removed. But, for example, I know Christians who, they are wonderfully saved people. You know, they have a transformed life and a testimony, 
but they will spend hours a day watching Christian YouTube videos or listening to Christian sermons. And that's what the author's describing when he gave the illustration of the altar. He was clearing out all the furniture, and then he took out the books and the writings of man. So it's not just sin that has to go. The sin should already be gone. But it's this clutter that is in your mind and in your soul and it's preventing Jesus from coming in. Jesus said that we have to receive the kingdom as a little child. So that may be helpful as you think about just simplifying and emptying out the clutter. And I wonder today, do you recognize what we're talking about? And frankly, part of our concern about sharing this material today was that many of you who listen are filled yet with sin. You're cynical, you're angry, you're ambitious, you're filled with your own ideas and your own thoughts. You deal with people as a machine. You roll over them if they get in your way. You're still smoking or drinking. You're still engaged in sexual uncleanness. You're still watching ungodly things. You're still fully into the professional sports and the video games. You still are loving the world and the things of the world. And part of our concern is that we be able to say so clearly to you that you can never come up higher until you've been converted. Now the human heart can do wonderful things in turning aside from alcohol, tobacco, and other forms of gross sin. But God looks at the heart. You can't cleanse yourself of those outward sins without recognizing what they are and the cost you're bearing for those and knowing that they will take you to hell. A man has to be converted and conversion is instantaneous. It is a decision that I will allow Jesus to totally make me into a new person. I will leave my sin and I will go to Jesus. Now our concern was that you would misunderstand and think that you could begin to cry out for the Holy Spirit and for the anointing of Pentecost while yet walking in sin and not being converted. And some of you, you've said a sinner's prayer, but you're no different than the world. Your values the way you use money, the way you use your time. It's the same way the world does. There's no measurable difference between the way you act and the way a person of the world would act. Some of you are still cursing, swearing. Some of you are still fornicating. Some of you are still watching pornography. 
Some of you are still filled with wild ambition and your desire is only that you could be rich and you might give God a little bit out of that. But you worship wealth and money. Do you understand? First, you have to be converted. You have to be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit and washed by the blood of Jesus you have to be crucified with Christ. Now, after that has happened and you have left your sin, then comes the next inner cleansing where now even the good is laid aside and everything is put on that altar of burnt offering. Your wife, your husband, your children, your job, Everything is laid on the altar and given to Jesus. Another practical example that I have often seen is Christians will meet together to have a time of fellowship at, a, at someone's home. And the whole time will be some kind of argument. It might be the Calvinists and the Arminians in the room start arguing. And they spend two or three hours arguing their theology, and everyone else wishes they would stop, and nothing is accomplished. They're not praying. They're not reading scripture together. So this is what I'm saying. You can be a converted person who is no longer a sinner, but you're still filled with these, I don't know what you would even call it. Pride? It's just unfruitful. You're filled with many unfruitful ways. And that has to be cleared out so that you can receive Jesus just through simple faith in that second work where you are now empowered for service. You're not going to win souls to Jesus by going out on the streets and arguing with them about Calvinism. I've tried it and it doesn't work. And I've had to repent. But that was something I did in my immaturity as a new convert. And likewise, you're not going to do the work of Christ if you go out and tell people, just believe on Jesus and you'll be saved. And say this little sinner's prayer. It doesn't work that way. The only way a person can be saved is to be crucified with Christ. Their life has to end. And then a person is ready to begin moving forward with a total emptying of everything else that is not of sin in his life or her life. And where Jesus becomes everything to us. Anything last words you'd like to say? We have about three minutes left in our broadcast. We'd love to hear your responses to this broadcast. You can email us. That would be contact at nationalprayerchapel.com. You can write to us. Our P.O. Box is the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. We'd love to hear if you have a testimony of this infilling of the Holy Spirit we've been talking about. We'd love to hear if you have questions. We just want to know how you're responding and how we can get the conversation going and really dig in deep for you guys. 
Now, also, we are going to have a prayer meeting tonight at the All Saints Anglican Church, and you're welcome to come and pray. The meeting time, 7.30, and we'll pray probably till 9. You're welcome to come. Can you give us the location? Yes, we meet in the administrative conference room of the All Saints Church. That's 14851 Gideon Drive in Woodbridge, Virginia. You can find all of the information we just shared on nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. You can also find more information at our webpage, revivalnow.church. Revivalnow.church. We praise God today for you. Thank you for listening to this broadcast. And in the last minute, we would like to simply pray for you. Father, thank you that you moved in such wonderful power and answer to prayer yesterday so that we completed the offertory in just one day and we could go on the air today. Lord, I thank you for every listener and I ask that your grace would be very present with them and that they would enter into that deep place of love and power in Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, and you're Alexandra. And we're from the National Prayer Chapel. Pilgrim's Progress is the story of our journey toward the celestial city. God bless you. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. God bless you. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.